You're busy. We get it. Listen on the go to Farm Journal Intel Podcast, the latest insights from our webinars and content streams to inform and inspire your way of life. King corn, the corn economy. It's meant so much to so many producers over the years, but has the U.S. become too dependent on corn? That's the question that we're taking on today. We've got Dan Bossy from Ag Resource. Dan, welcome. Thank you, Chip. Good to be here. Very good. And we've got Mike Mock, Mike Mock Consulting. Mike, good to see you. Good. good to see I'm you. Chip Flory, the host of AgriTalk. I want to start with Mike. Okay. It, we're at an interesting point with this corn market right now. It feels like we're at a crossroads. Just lay the groundwork. What are you looking at on a daily basis when you're trying to figure out what this corn market's going to do? Well, we, we really dodged a bullet. If you go back to where we were when the first uh, USDA uh, S&D came out back in May in thoughts of a 16 billion bushel crop, uh, 96 million acres, yeah. and uh, not enough sold farmers long, way too much old crop and new crop. So a lot of folks not sleeping at night. So we're fortunate that a few things have fallen into place. Uh, I'm excited about uh, the fact that China's around, but Dan and I were talking earlier off camera that uh, we simply don't have the fobbing capacity to to run a big bean program and a big corn program. So uh, we've had a heck of a run. I just looked at some of the charts just to remind myself, you know, we were 405 at the high. We traded down to 320. 363's halfway back. That matches beautifully with the summer high. I look at folks that, you know, uh, and it's, it's a winners and losers situation. I know that folks at home and I were struggling, but we got people we talked to in Evansville, Indiana, going to the best crop ever. So yeah. if you've got the crop and you're at these kind of price levels, we think you need to step up and do something. And one thing, Dan and I aren't going to get much of a wrestling match today. You know, we, <laughs> we, we agree on a lot. Uh, but, you know, the one thing I really share with Dan is we're always looking out at the forward opportunities. So in addition to what's being offered here, we've got Red Deece Corn, low 380s. We've yeah. got the Deece 22, which Dan is harping on. It's at 394. Right. So we've got to keep those things in mind. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that 320 low. Is that still a possibility? Could we go back down and visit that? I, I, I don't feel that way. And that's a personal thing. And I don't know whether Dan agrees with that or not. What I am worried about is this upside gap we created in the low right. 340s. I think that's a real potential. Uh, you know, in October, we're going to get a revision uh, that will take into account not only the uh, uh, enrollment acres uh, that, uh, from the FSA, but we're also going to get some data from the insurance folks. And we talk to those folks on a regular basis. And, you know, we lost 7 million acres from the market intentions to the June. There's four or 500 in Illinois that I wonder if we don't find back. So you just never know when you're going to get hit upside the head with that. So the safe way is to take some steps and, you know, whether you're a straight hedger with with cash or you're looking at option-related tools, we're at a point where particularly chip because we came in so undersold. So this is a wonderful opportunity to make catch-up sales. Okay. Wonderful. I'm going to come back to that in in just a bit. I want to do the same thing with you, Dan. Lay the groundwork. What are you looking at on a daily basis? Well, I I think uh, Mike's got it really right. I think as you think about the corn market, there's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know FSA. You know, they came up with that 81.1 million acre number in August. A lot of people hadn't certified yet. We'll get a revision in, in September, October. We don't know yield. I may still think corn could go back to 320, but it depends on the yield. Yeah. And so today there's so much variability in this crop as we've gone 
through oh, it. Yeah. There's some record yields. There's some crops that are actually going pineapple-ish right now and getting hurt badly. And so when this all sorts out, is it going to be a 176 or a 180? We kind of think that's the range as we see it today. But in saying that, if we are closer to the 180, that 320 is still possible. But again, I'm happy China's here. Thank yeah. God they're around. Um, we did dodge a bullet because at one point my balance sheet had a three in front of it and we are now looking at something in a two. I will also say this, and I'll add on Mike's comments, there's something called a stocks report that'll come out at the end of September. Yep. That number back in June wasn't fully accounted for. There's a, there's a chance we could find an extra 100 million bushels of old crop, and USDA's probably got Jeez. their feed residual and their ethyl estimates a little too high. So, you know, when you sit back from it, I, I agree. If we look at corn prices today, they're trading at 358. We're only a few cents where we were a year ago, yet I know I got a crop that's probably a billion or a billion three larger, depending upon where yield is. And so to me as an analyst, this 358 to 365 area is a place you want to be rewarding, Chip. Okay. So when we consider the idea, has the U.S. farmer become too dependent on corn? I always, I'm, I'm going to go straight to the acres, Okay. When you take a look at that, eight, that June acreage report, excuse me, the March planning intentions report to the June acreage report, took 5 million acres of corn out of the mix there, and you think of everything that changed from when that survey was done for the prospective plantings report to the June, COVID. Um, we just didn't see a price reaction. The incentive to increase or stick all those corn acres in the ground was pretty low. Um, the reason that we've got such high prevent plant acres up north is because when the last plant date came around, this year they pulled the pin. Last year they kept mudding it in. This year they pulled the pin on the planter. How much, how much is too much when it comes to corn acres, Mike? Well, Chip, I think that's an interesting point. And, and if 92 is the number, uh, I'm comfortable with that. But we were going to plant 96. I mean, that's the third yeah. biggest PP number in, in uh, you know, history here. So uh, we want to plant uh, corn acres. We want to plant too much. And we're not willing enough to look at doing some diversified things. So I talked to Missy Bauer, who was a favorite agronomist of mine that was here. And she's done wonderful work with people in this neck of yeah. the woods and south with wheat. Uh, you know, where folks are knocking out 100 bushels all the time. And, you know, Dan and I are talking about, you know, we got 550 plus futures. We got a crop insurance price that's going to be good. Uh, here in the south, we can do some double crop beans. I'm saying, wouldn't this be a perfect fall to do it, particularly because the beans are going to come off early? So I asked Missy, I said, what do you think about that? You're a wheat promoter. She said, Mike, most of these guys don't want to work in the summer. I thought that's a hell of an answer in terms of trying to manage your business. So I think that the, if, if we hadn't had these issues, we'd have planted our 95, 96. We'd have had a real mess. Dan and I yeah. would be talking about tables with a 3, 3, 3, 4 kind of you know, ending structure. Yeah. Yep. So we, we need to be. And, and a good example, Glenn's a newcomer's hosting us here today. Yeah, he's a full-time farmer. He's got a nice-sized operation, but he sells seed corn. He sells crop insurance. There's other off-farm income. He's diversified. He's, yeah. he diverse, diversified his time. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we're getting some good news. I mean, cotton prices have improved. Rice prices have improved. The cattle market's gone up despite the, the numbers we had last Friday. So we, we've got to be open-minded to that. And that's the biggest concern that I've got. I've, I've done it this way. Dad's done it this way. I'm a 50-50 guy and nothing's changing. I cringe when I hear that, Chip. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's really about can we create competition for acres amongst corn and soybeans, really, right, Dan? No, I think that's right, Chip. And as you think about next year, at least uh, I believe that next year farmers will plant more beans. 
And so next year may be the year of being bearish of beans, where this year was the year to be bearish of corn. We'll see how this all comes out with yield, because if the yields are really good and with bean crop we had, I think farmers will look at beans as being a tougher crop and maybe have a little more windage there. But, but you know, really the question we should be asking, I, we're, we're talking about is do we have too much corn? My big thing is I need a new demand driver. Yeah. I need something that is going to change the profile. So if I look back, uh, the funds, if you will, have spent $87 billion in agriculture trying to get we farmers to have more crop, making it easier, making productivity higher. I want someone to invest in demand because today there's just not enough of it. You know where I'm going. Sure. Fire away. E15. Is it that new source of demand? Uh, maybe. Uh, but but um, I, I want to look longer term. I got my five to ten year kind of window out there. And, uh, and I look what Tesla's done. And I look at, uh, you know, Gary Cooper here was talking about the impact that the East Coast and West Coast has had on protein consumption. And I don't think we can make light of that. I worry about corn fructose and how people view that in the market. Um, I, I think that, that ethanol is around here for a period of time, but I'm talking to growers and their sons and their daughters and saying, okay, what are we going to do down the road? And the other thing, and again, Dan and I touched on this earlier off camera, you know, when we had the big push, 08 to 13, we basically invited the rest of the globe to our production party. To grow you know? corn. So I, I yep. did a little dig in here. I didn't want to overdo this, but in 2000, Ukraine raised... 4 million tons of corn, and they used it all. Then in 2010-ish, they were about 12. This year, if they'd had any weather, they'd been 40, you know, and all of that competes with us. Brazil's going to do the same thing. Dan's got an office down there. He can confirm this. I mean, we've got lots of competition, and the dollar has weakened, which is nice to see. So many ways gives uh, the, the Chinese and Japanese more purchasing power, but the Brazilian real, not cooperating, right. Argentine peso, Ukraine rivnia, Russian ruble, so we've still got all kinds of issues. So you know, we're, if, if, if we lose or, or, or go flat uh, in, in ethanol, and I'm with Dan on his comments about the residual numbers and, and maybe knock 50 off, I think they could knock 50 to 100 off next year's ethanol numbers uh, if we don't have the political will to move all this stuff forward. And that concerns me, Chip. Okay. All right. I'm going to continue to ask some questions and keep the conversation going, but... If you've got questions out there, you're watching online, make sure that you use the question box down at the bottom. We've got people watching it here. Clinton's going to take a look at it. Heather's going to take a look at it, and we'll get those questions going up here. You got one? Hey, before we get to it, I, I, I want Dan to answer that E15 question. Could E15 be that, that answer, or are you... It, 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 it could be, but it takes legislation. It takes government to push it and to say, this is what we need to do, much like e, you know, E10. So until we get our legislators behind it, I don't see service stations at this price level in Chicago, I'll use for example, switching over. And so I need a push from our politicians. Okay, very good. So you know where I'm going to go with this. Uh, it's a question we're all asking. So what are the reasonable alternatives then for a Corn Belt producer, as you've right. been talking about a corn and soybean conversation. Right. You know, I, I, for as long as I've known you guys, we've been talking about the need for a third viable crop in the middle of the country. You know, is it hemp? <laughs> I, I don't think so. I'm going to offer, I think it's carbon. Okay. Mm. And I say this because in my mind, and I'm, I'm trying this. to push this for the Farm Bill forthcoming, I believe we farmers are the answer to climate change. And with that, I think the consumer, if it is measurable, is willing to pay us for carbon. And so I think about carbon sequestration and what we could get paid for that. So my new crop chip is carbon. 15 bucks a ton, couple of ton an acre. 
It's 30 bucks an acre. It's nice add-on revenue, right? But can you turn carbon into a reason to leave a piece of ground fallow for a year? Well, that's again up to legislations and where we farmers want to push the discussion. So farm bills not coming up till 2023, but I know from my perspective, when I go to DC, I try to push the carbon discussion, particularly as this weather pattern has gotten so crazy as we see a category four storm come on shore last night and this flash drought that we have across the Midwest. To me, climate change is becoming more real to the politician. Okay. Where does carbon all fit in this for you? Well, I think that's, I think Dan's onto something. I really do. And, and I think it, who wins the election? Uh, and I think one party versus another might drive this conversation faster than the other. Um, you know, it, it, is it a, a sweep one way or the other? Is it a split? Do we have more gridlock? Uh, this is a real tough one, and, but it is focused on the political, and, and that's a challenge. And I, I've always said this for growers. I said they're never active enough. You know, whenever I get together with the Soybean Association, the corn growers, I said, are you and your folks pushing hard enough for these issues? Because it's going to be, you know, they, they want to see $6 corn and $11 beans around the corner, and that's a real challenge to see. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you go back to 2003, four, five, just a real, just go nowhere kind of market with revenue potential that we thought was limited forever. Then 2007 comes along with first round of the RFS. Then we get RFS two and we add over time, call it 5 billion bushels of demand. Mm -hmm. I I like the carbon idea, but I like it as an add-on. I like it as an add-on. I would just as soon find that next thing that's going to bring a billion bushels of corn demand to us on a regular basis. I think that helps us solve more problems. I don't know what that answer is, but I think that solves more problems. Well, I, right, wrong. I, I, I think you're right, Chip, but I, like you, I'm not putting my fingers into what crop that may be. I don't yeah. think it's hemp. Um, if, unless we get legislation to get back to cellulistic fuels or right. something like that which then that would happen. But, you know, the CBD oil market gets saturated pretty fast. Pretty quickly. Yep. And yep. so it doesn't help a lot of farmers in terms of acres. So I try to, I, I agree carbon is an add-on, but I think if you politically positioned it for climate change, it could also, with a cover crop, be an answer to extra income to lift us up above our neighbors in South America or others. What do you make of Mike's comment about the outcome of the election? It is, is a Biden win, does it push carbon quicker? Than a, than a return of Trump to the White I, House? I think Mike is right. I think one, uh, one side, and I try not to be political here, but right. one side is more environmentally friendly than the other. And so one's a little more trade-focused, one's environmental. I think you could get the carbon aspect getting going pretty quickly if indeed we had a Biden administration in there. Okay, interesting, interesting. Question. Do you think the sorghum or wheat crops could be competitive in the upper Midwest if they were to find a home. And on the carbon question, we're talking about carbon sequestration. Yes. Not just for some clarity for folks. Yes. Sequestration. Yes. I'm sorry. I thought I said that, but if that's the case. That, that's absolutely right. We are talking about carbon sequestration. Okay. Let's, uh, let's evaluate sorghum and wheat, but let's do it separately. Well, you start with Kansas. Yep. You know? I mean, it's a huge corn producing state today. You know, it can do other things with the right kind of circumstances. I used to talk about how South, how the whole Corn Belt has changed. Indiana was an important uh, corn state, still is, but what about South Dakota and Kansas? Yeah. These are not considered Corn Belt states. These folks have a history of alternatives, and, and they need to look at those. 
I mean, I, I think that's where you go. I'm not talking about the farmer in McLean County, Illinois. I get that, okay? Right. But there are a lot of folks on the periphery that have some other opportunities. And Chip, if, if they're just not going to go there, I'm going to raise corn and beans like Dad and Grandpa did, then make sure you sell it forward when you get opportunities. Sure. That, that, that's all I'm Sure. Well, the, the sorghum question is one of China, right. and, and of course they make an alcoholic drink over there called Bayou, so that's a question of how much can they take and consume as an alcoholic physician. I think there's a limitation on that. In wheat, you know, I got to tell you, I, th I think the wheat world has now shifted from Kansas City and Chicago to my friends in the Black Sea. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I know maybe if the insurance revenue price is up as we get to September 15th, there may be some more wheat acres, but I'm not seeing the U.S. as being a wheat, big wheat producer going Yeah, forward. you look at your total global wheat consumption, it feels a little stagnant. I'm going to bring this back to corn and let's because I, I want to go global with the conversation now. The amount of demand that China is showing us for their their corn reserves, they were in buying corn again this morning. They had big announcement from USDA. I think the 750 or something like that, 750,000 metric tons, and then another 140 went to unknown. These are some nice numbers and some good demand that is is coming in from China. And around the globe, we were on a nice string of using more corn on an annual basis than we produce. And when you get into that kind of a situation, it always feels to me it's just a matter of time before corn goes out and starts bidding more aggressively for acres, whether it's in Ukraine, in the United States, in the South against cotton, in the North against wheat. It globally... I think corn still has a story to tell, doesn't it? Well, let me, let me go here because I think the producers now need to understand that as we, Mike and I grew up in this business, we focused on the U.S. balance sheet. It's now become hemispheric. Yeah. And, and so my farmers down in Brazil, in Mato Grosso, let me just pick a province down there, they planted last year about 43% of their soybean acres to safrina or the winter corn crop. If prices are good enough, right now they're at record highs in Brazil. They're trading soybeans at 110 rias a bag. Corn is up to 58 or 60. These are prices Brazilian farmers have never seen. Never seen. And so if I all of a sudden plant all of Mato Grosso winter corn, I got an extra 30 million metric tons. And so that's how quickly this whole game can change. And so knowing Brazil is really a big deal now for the American farmer. It's the reason I have an office, so I can get that understanding. Okay. Yesterday, Conab says 112 in corn, 133 in beans. Why would you doubt them, given what Dan just said? Yeah. So that's, that's, that's always going to be the challenge. Yeah. Uh, policy question for you guys. What if some of these alternative crops, I guess we will call them now, even though they were there before corn and soybeans in South Dakota and, and in Kansas, what if some of these alternative crops had better crop insurance available to them? Could that start to take away, make them more attractive and pull some of those acres away from corn? I think a lot of lenders would be interested in that and be supportive of that, particularly if they're low input crops. You know, that's one of the things that the bankers always ask me here locally, you think guys are going to plant more wheat and a little less corn? Because that's less money to borrow, you know, that right. sort of thing. So I think there's, there's something to that. The policy is, uh, issue is such a huge one, and Dan's a step ahead of me on all that, but you know, a, a lot of this is going to be dictated uh, between now and 2023 with, with what D.C. tells us. What do you think? Well, you, you, can, you can get the policy going, but we've got to get rid of it somewhere, you know, whether it be oats or sorghum or mm -hmm. wheat at some point. I mean, maybe oat milk will help us out, but 
at some degree, we still have this pile that keeps growing unless we can build demand. And that's why I get back to this. If you look back to the 70s or biofuels or even after World War II, it was a demand shock that got the next bull market going in agriculture. We keep looking for that every day. The and, demand and, and shock. That's, that's what we need. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if we can rely on, on exports to give us that kind of a demand shock anymore because of what you guys have already talked about. The competition around the world is just that much more and, severe. And, you know, and our, our, our ability to ship it. I mean, there's, we have such a huge fall program in beans. So all of a sudden, you know, Toledo, Chicago, Milwaukee, uh, Galveston suddenly become important as we try to move, uh, you know, our ability to ship around. Uh, people that are hoping for an enormous fall corn program just aren't being realistic. We can't, we can't get it shipped out in time. And I don't see the exporters wow. investing in, in, you know, all of a sudden we're going to build a bunch of new elevators. We've got a new elevator in Toledo that Cargill built that was built in the early 70s. And that's, yeah. that's the new one in town. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. We are starting to see some improvements on the locks and dams on the Illinois River. Yes. That's good news. We can get more efficient moving the product. It does look like there is likelihood that we're going to see some spending on the Mississippi and upgrade some of those uh, facilities there, too. But, uh, yeah, it, it'd be nice if, if we could compete more aggressively and be, much, be that much more efficient in the, in the loadings, no doubt. Well, we've got an elevator down in, uh, at the Gulf, uh, ADM's Reserve. It's down 50, almost 50 million bushels a month. Um, I think the last major export elevator that's been built was Bungie's Longview, wasn't it? Out that's in PNW. It. Yeah, PNW. That's and so, thing. you know, it's been many, many years since we've really invested in that export infrastructure. Today, Brazil, on a weekly basis, can export more than the U.S., and I never thought I would say that. Wow. Okay. Question. We have a question along those lines asking about, okay, we do produce a lot of corn. How competitive are we right now currently against the global market? Do we still win as producers here in the U.S.? Go ahead, Dan. Today we win. Today U.S. corn is the cheapest in the world until we get to about, oh, November, December, and then some Argentinian scraps are left. But today we are winning and we are the cheapest uh, corn. But again, because of elevator and infrastructure problems, U.S. corn is trading a dollar, 95 cents to a dollar five over Chicago. That is extremely rare. And a year ago, it was 50 to 60 cents cheaper. Yeah, and long term, it's going to come down to the, to the currency relationships and everything. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, the dollar, everybody says the dollar is getting weaker, Chip, but I, it's only weaker against the euro and yep. maybe the, the Japanese yen, yen and, yeah. and, and, and the yuan. When you look at the real, the peso, the Ukrainian hryvna or ruble, they're still, they're still dropping. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right, I'm going to come back to another policy question because I can hear three guys out there somewhere screaming, ask the question, ask the question. Is it time for supply-side control? Get uh, back to set-asides. I hate that question more than any question. I mean, that's what got us in trouble. You, you, you can't win that way. Right. You can't win. They just step up. They get bigger. They get faster. If we haven't learned that lesson by now, shame on us. I, I can't say that strongly enough. That, that is a... I'd stand up 
at the top of the building and scream on that one. That's just the wrong thing for everyone. Watch out for me because I'll be standing right next to you. Uh, okay, good. good. Yep. We'll, both, yep. we'll fight that Are fight you, together. You coming along to this party? Uh, Mike, I, I, Mike and Chip, I'm right there behind you screaming. It's, uh, you know, when we did the supply management programs in the 70s and 80s, we were the game. Yeah. We yeah. in the EU. Today, if we do it, we're just giving market share to Brazil and Ukraine and other countries. We can't afford to do that as American farmers. And the today. amount of investment that has moved into those countries that now compete with us from the importers of the product is so overwhelming that you, if, if you give them any reason to question the reliability of the United States as a supplier of corn to the rest of the world, they'll, they'll we'll, we'll become a wheat exporter. You know, the exporter, the, the supply of last resort. Residual yes. exporter. Residual exporter. We can't do that. No, no. no. It would be, it would be a, a terrible political move. Though I will tell you, there's people in Washington, because I get calls that think about these kind of things. Well, we can fix the problem by just setting aside 10 or 15 or 20 million acres. And, and our response would be as it is. Right, right. So when you have a conversation with your clients, Dan, the end users of the world, what's their biggest concern on corn? Uh, their biggest concern is having enough coverage until the next harvest in another place in the world. So we try to use breaks in the market to get coverage until there's another supply avenue. And, you know, and again, I get back to this hemispheric production, something that a lot of American farmers will find as new. So they will take three to six months of coverage, as they did during the early August time frame, and then they'll kind of back away, waiting for the next supply. So no longer do we need markets that have to ration over a year. We now think about it in terms of six months. Okay. Mike? It makes sense. I, I think that's exactly the case. And I, t I told growers, I said, one thing to watch for, this could be interesting. I don't want to be Debbie Downer all the time, so what, what could be positive? We're a little concerned. Uh, I'd be interested in what Dan has to say about this, that if, if uh, SEP 15 rolls around and northern Brazil is dry enough, they don't really want to plant, and it's pushed back a week or two. Now, that okay. doesn't mean anything in terms of their bean production. They're still going to raise right. a heck of a bean crop. Uh, what it might do is push back some concerns about so, some uh, timely safrinha planting. But my whole point is the market may add in some sort of risk premium to that that needs to be sold. You know, we're, I love that comment because it's a, such a good reminder that even though we're looking at a 2.4, a 2.5 carryover at the end of 2020-21, it is still a kind of just-in-time delivery market you know it's it's get us from one paycheck to the next basically right yep no that's exactly and that's at every six months so if you yeah. have a problem in one country and you get a problem in another to mike's point that's when you get the market response but it's hard to line those all up if you will yeah. to have it all happen and it's less frequent than we used to think about in terms of a drought every four or five years across the midwest right okay pro farmer did the crop tour last week when they were done Brian, Jeff, myself, a couple of other people. We sat down, we took all the crop tour data in, and the number that came out at the end was 177.5, plus or minus 1%. So when you said 176 to 180, it's right there. Um, I still like that number today, but since August 1, this corn crop has gone backwards, and it feels like it's still going backwards. Can you do enough supply-side damage this year to change the story on corn and get us thinking about a, you know, a 390 cash bid 
a $4 cash bid again. Can we change the supply side story enough this year? Mike. Uh, I would struggle with that. Uh, I, I, it could happen if the bean yield really falls off a cliff. And there's a couple things that concern me. I, Dan made some comments earlier about the stocks report and some issues there. Yeah. I, I worry about that. Uh, I also see, and you, you folks really saw it, which was incredible soybean pod counts. I well, mean, we were staring at a monster. Well, when you get out here to the SEP report, that's going to play a major role in the number the government gives us. Yes, so it, it will. It's not going to be a low number in October. That's right. So th those are things that, that concern me in here. So when you talk about that, I always like to talk to guys, what part of the country, cash? You know, we had some JFM prices here, uh, you know, tributary to the river that were very attractive in, in my mind, very attractive. Now, not every part of the country, but again, if you got a guy in Mount Vernon, Illinois, Evansville, Indiana, access to the river, good river bid, there's nothing wrong with selling some cash, and there's also nothing wrong with, with setting some floors, both corn and beans. We've all been on the phone here today, but I've had a very busy day using option strategies to get floors in place here because, okay. because I'm, I share Dan's concerns. We may quibble whether it's 320 or 340, but there's still risk, and we've got to manage it. Right, right. Can we so, do enough supply-side damage? So I'll respond to you historically. And I say that because there's three other Augusts that are drier than this August to date. Okay. okay? That's 2003, yep. 2008, and 2013. Okay. Okay, if you add them all up together, the average corn decline from the, uh, from the August to September report was 1.6 bushels an acre. Of the two years that were down, there was one year that was up. And by the final, two of the three years were actually higher. So I can slice at the maximum three or four bushels an acre off of whatever number you want to start at, whether it be USDA's or your number chip at Pro Farmer. But when I come to the end of it, I can't get enough corn loss to get there. Now, in those same years on soybeans, we had a big drop in 03, but yeah. that maybe was the dryness or maybe those pesky little aphids, aphids. back then. That's yeah. right. And so <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to really couch that. But then complicating all of this is how many acres will we miss on those straight line winds across Iowa? Yeah. Is it a half million? Is it a million and a half? So as I said earlier, there's a lot of uncertainty we, out there. Pro Farmer took 300,000 off the harvested acres out of Iowa. I'm at 400,000, so we're close. Right. And the, the reason is, is because every place we stopped, they said, oh, no, we're going to go after it. We're going to go after it as much as we can. So you got to respect that and, and understand that, yeah, it might be in a lower yield coming out of those fields, but there's they're still going to get after it and, and, and do what they can with uh, it. Chipper, let me ask you a question. Let's say that happens. We get to a 390 type price. Yeah. Is the grower going to sell significant quantities at that value, or is he waiting for the next thing that's going to take it to 410 or 420? That's, that's my frustration. When there's a goalpost out there that he shoots for, that he so often comes up short, he misses. So why not start prior to that number and then hit it even harder if it gets there, to that magic figure? There's a phrase that I've been waiting for some of the, the closely followed analysts to start using, and that is uh, uh, the, the bull was bailed out by the drought. The bull was bailed out by the ratio. Mm -hmm. The bull was bailed out. There's never a bailout because it's all about managing risk. Mm -hmm. And that risk of a drought, late season droughts, yeah. was always there. The risk of a storm that's going to take out, you know, however many million bushels of corn out of Iowa, that risk is always there. And it's just a question of keeping that all in balance. The, we're going to start hearing those bailouts comments as soon as the sales that those guys made are 20 cents below 
30 cents below. Yep. So once those numbers start getting underwater and we start hearing the bailout numbers, I, or the bailout comments, I sure hope everybody gets really aggressive and starts locking in those prices. I don't care if it's at $370, dollars $94, because that kind of sentiment is going to really, I think, this year is going to drive what the funds are going to be doing. And the funds have obviously become so important in here. Well, and I, I've got some of these fund managers, and I'll tell you, they really don't want to buy corn. I don't see them coming right. in and buying. No. They will only sell it. They've been sellers now for 18 months, and they continue to want to do that. But what we're all trying to measure is when is the day that, it's, that we all feel the worst about the crop? Yeah. You know, uh, is, and it'd probably be between now and, let's say, that USDA crop report on the 15th. Once we figure out how small is small, the discussion a couple weeks ago, how big is big, yep. then we'll start to look to yep. other factors. Okay. Now, have you got one? Oh, yeah. We, we've got tons of questions oh. pouring in here. So let's, we can get to a few of these. Uh, one of the questions, obviously, we often get, and we get this in ag all the time, is why not incentivize some other crops? Why not go into produce more into the Midwest? Chances of that and why not? I think I, my push for that, I think, was in my crop insurance question earlier. If they would improve the crop insurance that's available to the produce market, to some of these other um, um, alternative crops out there, make those crops more attractive over corn, I, I, think, I think the production and the, and the acres would move over to those alternative crops. How long will it take for demand to catch up to where production is for corn right now? That's a question for these guys. Uh, that's a real challenge. I mean, we continue to raise bigger crops all the time. Uh, you know, good luck with that one. Uh, you, you've got, to, I think Dan points out here, you not only have to have problems in the U.S., you've got to follow it right up with a southern hemisphere problem or something in the Black Sea. I mean, we're sitting here at 358 with the Ukrainian crop. It's probably six or seven million tons smaller than it could have been. You know, my, my question is, what happens if we'd have had a normal weather year across the northern hemisphere? We'd, we'd be sub three bucks. So we've got to manage, if we're committed and folks are committed, I know right now that, that Glenn has got seed corn customers that are going to buy seed for next spring, and they've got to take a look at 385, 390 red dish corn and yep. say, hey, I've got to evaluate that. Yep. I, can, I can put it in the bin, I can earn carry, there's my $4 price to, right. a, to an ethanol plant or whatever. And actually, Mike, I, I know we talked about farmers being bailed out because they hadn't sold enough, right. but had we gone down, and my work was showing that, had we gone down to 280 or 250, let's say, just for the worst case scenario, if weather was good, the PLC payments were going to be 15 Yes. an acre, yep. and it was going to really help out the farmer. Yep. And, and now today, I'm kind of back in this purgatory again, which is 340 to 370. Yeah. You know, re revenue insurance payment just got a lot smaller, and it's kind of like, ugh. I, 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 revenue I, isn't moving. On the rally, revenue isn't moving. No, That's the no, problem. No. That is a big problem. Yeah. Chip, one other thing I want to slip in here, too, because we noticed this. Uh, we had a tremendous amount of farmers that fell in love with basis-only contracts last year. Yep and without any protection. And what I noticed when the May contract was rolling off, they have to roll again. Now they've been painfully rolling, you know, and then again in the July, and then again to the September. In, in the days that we had to price a roll, a lot of grain got priced. Yeah. And, and that's just no place to be. So no. whatever you do, you've got to be proactive and forward-looking and not get it's caught. Yeah, that, that. yeah you, you, the, the same warning can be put out for HTAs. When you do oh, an yeah. HTA only, you're half done. Yep. You, you still got the basis to do. When you do basis, you're half done. You still got the price to lock. Yep. All right, we've got another one here. 
from a, there's been a lot of comments about the carbon sequestration conversation. What could be done to move that conversation forward? And we know we have some independent companies that are doing this now. So Very for much. me, the question is, is it an independent company project or is this a policy project? Personally, I hope it's driven by private industry. I, I really do. And uh, private industry is going to have a much clearer path to working with the companies that are going to need that, that are going to need the services. I, so I'm a private industry guy on this. Oh, I, I, and I agree, though. I like a little policy help, and that's why it's, not, it's helpful to talk to your legislators. Uh, but, but, but I believe that the consumer really is willing to engage in this discussion. And companies have to have, want to have a carbon-neutral footprint as we go into the years ahead. So we as farmers can really help out in that. But I need to have... I need to have it put together. I need it to be measurable. I need it to be something that can be legislatively done, and I need an exchange or something so that all of this can get traded or put together very easily. Yeah. Yep. Very good. No argument. Got another one? I do. Okay. So the, the, the question here is, obviously, we still have, I mean, and this goes right back to the heart of agriculture, right? So obviously... Uh, there are still hunger issues in the world. Can we push more nutrition uh, as a form of diversification here? Yeah. Absolutely, we can push more nutrition programs. I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, I just wonder, you know, when, when you look at the, some of the countries, some of the areas where those nutrition programs are most needed, you wonder how much good they really do just because it gets so tied up and bogged down in the bureaucracy and the, you know, corruption and everything else. So if it, it it's got to be so closely managed at any of the nutrition programs that we do around the world, uh, it's got to be so closely managed. I don't know if you can suck up enough quantity, honestly. Well, Kenya? If, if, I, I, I've never spent so much time in Africa in the last couple of years doing these kind of things, and there's a definite need there. The problem being is you've got governments that are, I don't want to call uh, broken, but they're very tribal. And so to move food into Uganda, for instance, or, or, or Ethiopia, a very difficult yeah. endeavor. And it's, it's all about cash and, and the availability to donate, but nobody wants to donate because a lot of these African countries could feed themselves. And if we push food in, it dissuades all that. So it's, right. it's a real big conflict here. But to the point is, we are now over 900 uh, uh, million people in the world that are, that are hungry and starving. This number is doubled in the last year and a half. Okay. Order's on shameful. Yeah, guys, and this, this reminds me. This reminds me of something that everybody talked about two years ago, three years ago. And that was that by the time we get to 2050, 9.2 billion people around the globe and we need to double the amount of food production. Is that argument still valid? I, I, is, I, have, I have faith in technology. You know, I, I think we've been moving the population ahead steadily each year, yeah. and yet technology has produced more grain and more opportunity. I'm with you. And so I, I have my heart in technology to feed people. I got in that discussion with a grower group, and the, the one guy I knew really well, and he was picking, I said, Mike, you're, you're almost always too bearish. I said, no, I'm incredibly bullish. I'm bullish on your ability to produce. Yeah. And we're turning the Black Sea loose. We're turning the South Americans loose. That, that's a big challenge. Very competitive world today. 
Politically, is the Black Sea region going to hold together well enough that they can continue to produce? It looks to me as I, as you know, that the government, the Putin administration, if you will, is taking over more and more of the chain, if you will. And so with uh, a, an export company that's become rather sizable over there, uh, I believe Solaris that they will, they will keep it together. It seems like the government is very much behind agriculture in making sure of their position. This year, we think you, you know, Russia can export maybe 37 or 38 million metric tons of wheat. Next year, if we have good weather, because they didn't have very good weather this year, they could do a 90 million metric ton wheat crop pretty easily. Okay. Scary numbers. Yeah. Earlier, I said something about the reliability of the U.S. as a supplier. What about the reliability of China as a buyer? <laughs> Where do we stand there? That's a big one. I mean, they... They've clearly, I think, uh, they've got some issues. They've got some problems. We don't really know, uh, you know, how bad they need all this stuff. And, and obviously they want to create some semblance of a relationship with the U.S. on a trading perspective. So we've thought all along that they would make a pretty good effort at phase one, and it's in the process of rolling out. But when I hear 40 million tons of beans, I, I just, I don't see how we get that job done. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe they buy 10, 12, even 15 million tons of corn. But is it enough to move the needle against the background that we, we just described? Right. That's, that's the problem. That's the big question. Where, where would we be if we didn't have them? I mean, oh, that's, yeah. that's, that's really scary. On your reliability meter, where does China fit? About uh, four or five. Yeah. Uh, and I say that because I sure wish this administration would have done a trade treaty versus a president-to-president -president deal because either president can wake up some morning, strike his pen, and the phase one deal is over. And then at the end of the day, I was hoping to get to phase two and three so we could really diminish tariffs. I mean, historically, if we look, tariffs are easy to put up but very difficult, difficult to take to down. down. Yep. Yep. And now COVID comes along, and it just, it's so discouraging to hear President Trump say, I'm not that interested in phase two and phase three anymore oh. because of the virus. We as farmers need phase two and phase Absolutely. three. Absolutely. That, that's getting the ball over the, end, over the goal line and into the end zone if we can get two and three. Yep. That's what makes it stick. Any other questions out there? Go ahead. Yeah. Interesting comment there. Basically what it was is, and I, if I'm wrong, let me know on this, but, but the comment here is China's been trading for 7,000 years. They're pretty doggone good at it. Okay, so they're in here buying corn now. They're getting long the board in anticipation of more purchases down the road. What if we get to October 3rd and they decide to pull the plug on it? Short the, short the futures market going into the election cancel some export sales, some export purchases, and slam the thing to keep Trump from winning real, from, from, the urban, from the rural support. You can about bet the farm on that. He says you can about <laughs> bet the farm on it. That gentleman has given that scenario some thought, Mike. <laughs> well, it's, I, I, I'm careful about how I couch that. All I would say is, that, you know, I like Dan's four to five. And uh, I worry about the upcoming reports. The funds are long, big in beans. They've cleaned up the uh, vast majority of their corn short position. We need some floor prices. We need some cash grain prices in place. We need to get some, some protection in place. And, and where I really agree with Dan, this is a historical thing, because I haven't seen Dan in probably a dozen years, <laughs> but we've, we, uh, we've stayed in touch. And it's the kind of thing where you know, when you get an opportunity out forward, you've got to take advantage of some of that. You just have to yeah. this, with everything that we've discussed yeah. today. Yeah. It, you know what? We're to that time. 
final statements, okay? Is that where you're going to take us? No, take that, a look I at those. Mike, at the I think Mike and I are aligned. I, I'm going to take this to the U.S. farmer, and I want them to think ahead. I want them to not only think about prices today, but 2021, 2022. If you can sell corn near or above $4 in any of those years, please do it, because I don't see a structural bull market on the demand side just yet. Mike, you right there? I'm right there. I can't argue it. Okay. You did a good job. I'm proud of them. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I'm proud of both of you guys. Thank you so much for the time that you've given us. You've been so gracious with your time. We've got Dan Bossy, Ag Resource over there, Mike Mock, Mike Mock Consulting. I'm Chip Flory, the host of AgriTalk. We're signing off from Bryan, Ohio. Looking for more great insights and education? Visit agweb.com slash field days on demand for more content from Farm Journal Field Days.